We're in John 16. We're going to cover the first 15 verses. John 16, 1 through 15. I'll read these verses for us. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you the things to come. He will glorify me, and for he, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time that you set aside in our week. Father, we study your word. Father, we thank you for the work of Dr. Sproul and his ministry and the the work that we have that's been guiding us through this lesson over the last several years, Father, months and years. And so we just thank you for the time this morning. Father, we pray that you'll bless it and pray that you will be here with us and, and give us truth from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So by way of introduction, before we really get into these verses, uh, Dr. Sproul spends some time uh, just kind of introducing the topic of the Trinity because Jesus here talks a lot about the work of the Holy Spirit. What we know is that virtually uh, every Christian church uh, down through the ages has included in its confessional statements uh, some form of affirmation of the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? And yet, in every generation, there are assaults on that reality. Okay, there are assaults, there are heresies that come up on this biblical concept. Um, Dr. Sproul said, even in our own day, we have a theoretical Trinitarianism. But in many instances, we have a practical Unitarianism. What does he mean by that? Well, for instance... There are a lot of churches uh, who where are where the person and the work of Christ is given all the attention, and they forget about the Father, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, these these churches seem to kind of have their own version of creeds where basically says Jesus is all I need, and so they focus completely on the second person of the Trinity. Now, of course, those churches then they they ver- they, they verbally affirm the Trinity. The reality that God is three, God is one God and three persons. But all, but for all practical purposes, they are uni- unitarian in their religious behavior. 
Theirs is a Unitarian version of the second person, the Son. There've also uh, he noticed that there's also within the last century there have been more books written about the Holy Spirit than in the first 19 centuries combined in the 20th century. Okay, there was there was more in the 21st century. There was more in the 20th century. Sorry, there was more books written on the Holy Spirit than the first 19 combined, and that's that's good. Okay, that some attention has been given to uh, the Holy Spirit, but uh, the reality is, it's in part there's so many books been written. Uh, because of the charismatic movement of what we would call Pentecostalism, which gives a lot of attention to the Holy Spirit, right? A lot of attention. And R.C. said, Dr. Sproul said, I, I think it's wonderful that the church has been awakened to the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. He says, we need that. He says, but we need to be careful that we don't slip into a practical Unitarianism of the third person, right? Where it's only the Spirit and not the Father and the Son because the reality is Scripture shows us that the work of God, everything that God is about is Trinitarian in every turn. Everything that happens is Trinitarian. It is involved God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When we look at the Trinitarian work of redemption, we can make some distinctions. We can make a distinction between its design and its accomplishment. So what do we mean? Well, think about the design of our redemption. Scripture says that it was designed and mandated by the Father uh, in conjunction with the other members, right? there. Remember the, the persons of the Trinity, they don't argue with each other, they don't get in fights, they are of one mind, they completely agree with each other and everything. But we know as far as, the, as far as redemption goes, who sent the Son into the world? The Father. The Father sent the Son into the world. That is, that is why here in John, in our, in our study in John, um, we have repeatedly see, we have seen Jesus tell His disciples that what? He's come here to do the will of the Father. Because the Father is the one who sent Him. Now, of course, the work of the Son of God is to accomplish the task of redemption, right? That the Father has intended. He's here to do a work. He's here to, to live a perfect life and then offer that life as a sacrifice on the cross. The, um, and I'm not familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, but uh, uh, the, the first question, is anybody familiar with the Heidelberg? Has anybody read through that ever before? pastor says yes. Anybody else? Uh, I haven't read through the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, but the first, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism said, asks this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That's a really good question, isn't it? What is your only comfort in life and in death? And this is the answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. It's a beautiful answer, isn't it? It's a beautiful answer, isn't it? Well, it's a really good description, right, of what Christ did to accomplish our Redemption. In, in living and in dying, Christ objectively accomplished all that was necessary for human redemption. Okay? He accomplished everything objectively that was necessary 
for human redemption. He, he did what? He satisfied the law perfectly. right? He fulfilled the law. He did it without sin. And he also, really a, a very important part of what he accomplished on the cross is he satisfied his Father's justice. Right? Remember, uh, we think about the justice of God. Remember, God the Father can't just turn a blind eye to sin. He can't just say, oh, I forgive you because I like you. Oh, I forgive you because I love you without some payment being made, right? Because his justice demands that there is a payment for sin. He can't violate his own character. So this, this justice, the Father's justice, well, we know how it was satisfied, right? Because it was poured out on the Son. It's poured out on the Son, his wrath. The justice was, his wrath was poured out on the Son, therefore his justice was satisfied. Remember, in the, in the plan of redemption, no one receives injustice. Okay, in the world. No, no one receives injustice from God. Okay, the elect, the saved, right? They are saved by grace. They're not, and, and the, the reprobate doesn't receive injustice. The reprobate receives what he deserves, right? There's never injustice with God. So, so far, we've seen the objective reality of what has been accomplished by the Son. But the big question remains. This is the question, right? How does, how does what Christ accomplished on the cross, so the, the, the act of redemption, how does it impact our lives? R.C. says, how does the objective redemption become a subjective reality for each of us? Well, the way he answers is, is at this point in theology, we would make a distinction between the accomplishment of redemption and its application. So we'll make a distinction between the accomplishment of redemption and its application. It is the task of the Holy Spirit who was sent by who? The Father and the Son. Remember, we talked about that earlier in our study. The, the Holy Spirit has been sent by the Father and the Son to then apply the work of Christ. To apply the work of, of Christ and, um, and to, to apply it to our lives, right? To, in the lives of the believers. One thing about the Spirit, what He is here to do to, to apply this work of Christ, he, he never brings attention to Himself. Okay, the Holy Spirit never brings attention to Himself. Who, whose attention is He driving us towards? He's driving us to the attention of Christ. He's pointing us to Christ, right? And what Christ has done. And then Christ does what? Who does He drive us to? He drives us to the Father. Everything I've said, I've said exactly what my Father has sent me to say. It is, I'm here to accomplish the will of my Father. Everything Jesus is always pointing to the Father, right? It's under His authority, which I speak. So, when you think about the work of, uh, of the Godhead, the Trinitarian uh, work, every, the whole work of redemption, okay? The whole work for, of redemption from beginning to end is Trinitarian. It involves all three persons of the Godhead. And here in this discourse here, uh, in the upper room discourse we've been studying, we see it uh, proclaimed clearly and powerfully here in this discourse from the words of Jesus now in the last chapter, uh, last chapter, so last week, we saw Jesus telling his disciples this thing. He says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
And in the opening verses of today's passage, Jesus is expounding upon that. He's giving some more details. Verses 1 through 4. This is Jesus speaking. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you, re- you, you may remember that I told you of them. Now here in that first um, uh, verse one, he says these things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. Now the connotation of this word stumble um, has behind it the idea of setting a trap. Okay, that's the idea, that's the connotation behind it. So he says that you should not be made to stumble. What's, what's he saying? Expect to be trapped, okay, or to be attempted to be trapped by the world. Uh, Jesus tells them that they could expect to be kicked out of the synagogues and even worse, right, killed for their testimony. He's saying we should or you should expect that. The hatred of the world uh, is so much so that they would seek to set a trap and to destroy the disciples in an effort to do what? To to prevent them uh, from sharing their witness, their testimony to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. The world does not want to hear that. They are... They are um, that they're going to experience this hatred just as Jesus said, hey, they hated me, they're going to hate you. He was also telling them these things. Why? And he said it, right? So you won't be surprised when it happens. Don't, don't be surprised. If you think everything's going to be easy, well, you got it wrong. I'm here to tell you, Jesus is saying, right? It's not going to be easy. Do not be surprised. These things will happen to you. If you're faithful to the ministry, right? If you're faithful to sharing the gospel ministry. And he also says he shared it with them. What? Because their faith would be strengthened. Right? So that their faith would be strengthened. And that's a prayer sometimes we don't often pray. Because usually in order for our faith to be strengthened, we have to go through some trial. Don't we? A lot of times, right? Trials do that. They have a way of producing um, and increasing our faith, and that's wonderful, but we don't often ask for that, right? Because we don't really want the trials, do we? Um, but but what he's saying, he says, your faith, will be, he, he's telling them, I'm telling you these things ahead of time. So when it happens, you'll know what's coming, and your faith will be strengthened. He goes on in the second half of verse, five, verse 4 and 5, and he says, And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go the way to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? Throughout Jesus' ministry, throughout his life even, he, he knew what was going to be in store for him. He knew when his public ministry began, some now in the timeline, the biblical timeline, some three years ago, right, from where we are, he knew from the beginning that there was going to be a need for him at some point to tell the disciples that his hour has come. He knew that it was coming, and he was at some point he was going to have to tell them. 
and uh, because now, because you know his his hour, uh, ha- uh, well, until his hour has arrived, until it was time, uh, he knew that there's not one thing that the world could do to him until it was the right time. Right? He knew Jesus knew he could not be harmed, he couldn't be silenced, right? Because the Father's got a plan. He and the Father have a plan, and it's going to be accomplished. And the Father's protection is over him. The, the God, God is protecting him through the ministry. So, so Jesus knows there's really, there's nothing's going to happen to me until the hour has come. Right? He said it many times, my hour has not come. Well, it's here now, right? It's here. He knows it's here. The other thing, too, about what he's saying with him, because, I, because he used those words, because I was with you, he was also with them along the way, and he was there also protecting them. He was guiding them. Right? He was leading them through this ministry. So, so that's why he said, that's why Jesus says, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So he, he's safe in the sovereign hand of God, right? Accomplishing what he's supposed to be doing. He says, but, but, but very soon, of course, the opposition, the, the world, the Pharisees, those who hate Jesus, would very soon have his way with him. They're about to, right? They're on the verge of having their way with him. And so since he's about to leave, his followers now uh, also would be expected to experience persecution. He's telling them this ahead of time. He says, you're going to be exposed to it because I'm leaving. They're, get, they're getting ready to have their way, but it's according to the plan. It's according to the Father's plan. It's about to happen. The hour has come. It's here. And I won't be here with you much longer and you're going to be exposed and then and then we have this this curious statement by Jesus right at the end he says and none of you ask me where are you going now wait a minute now I know we've been studying John for a while right but it was just a couple weeks ago we were in John 13 right and over in John 13 um, Peter asked him pretty plainly right when Jesus talks about leaving and going away, Peter asked him pretty plainly, right? Lord, where are you going? Right? Y'all remember that? It's over in John 13, 36. So had, had Jesus forgotten about that? No. That's, y'all know the answer to that question, right? Jesus had not forgotten about that. What, what Jesus was saying in a very real sense, he says, the time has come. The hour is here. Okay? He says, and I'm leaving. So, but but you're still, he's talking again, this is putting his words in just a little bit of other words, but to the disciples, you're still not really concerned about where I'm going. That's, that's what Jesus' point here. Um, you're still not really concerned about where I'm going. That's why that's, that's, that's the point of his, his question. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in a minute. He, he, knew, he knew this, right? He knew they did. They weren't really concerned about where he's going because why? They're overcome with grief. So Jesus says, "You're really not focusing on the right thing yet." That's what Jesus knows, and that's what he's trying to to tell them. He says in verse six, he says, uh, "But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart." That's what he says. What does that mean? It means Jesus is saying they don't really understand what's going on here. That's, that's what it means. They really didn't understand what was really happening here. And, of course, uh, they're, 
a little bit like us, right? We're a little bit like them. And what do we mean by that? They, they didn't really uh, understand at this point the importance of the ascension. Okay, and, and we're like them a lot of times. Um, they were they were only at this point, and this right, again what we're studying. They were only focused on what was about Jesus was leaving, so they focused on their loss. They're about to lose him. He's not going to be with them anymore. Uh, their master, their teacher, their rabbi who's been teaching them in this rabbinic school for the last three years, he's going away, he's leaving. And so what are they, they're focused where? Inward. We're losing Christ. And, and, and if you and I are honest with ourselves, we'd be right there with them. If we were in their shoes, right? We'd be right there with them. We'd be focused, man, we've had Jesus, he's the Messiah, they're all convinced of, he's been with us for three years, now he says he's leaving. That's terrible. For me, I'm losing him. He's going away. It's, it's an inward focused reality for them. They're focused only on their loss. Matthew Henry commented here, he says, that which filled the disciples' hearts with sorrow was too great of affection for this present life. Nothing more hinders our joy in God than the love of the world and the sorrow of the world which comes from it. What's, what, what does he say? It's, it's the, Matthew Henry says their problem, what? They're in love with the, the, the present life that they were in. They were just too, too, they just loved it too much, the present life that they were in. Nothing, I read that again, nothing hinders our, and this is you know, for all of us today, right? Nothing more hinders our joy in God than the love of the world. Hmm. They had not, the reality was at this point, they hadn't grasped the glory of what was about to happen. And so it, it, uh, it prompts Jesus to make this astounding statement, this amazing statement here in verse 7. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now just think for a minute. And I know I've thought about this many times. Um, how, how, how many times have, have you thought, as you, as you read the pages, especially of the Gospels, right, uh, of, of the accounts of Jesus' life on earth, how many times uh, have you thought to yourself, man, it would have absolutely been, it had been so amazing to have been alive when Jesus was here. Right? How many times have you thought, I've thought that many times, it would have been absolutely amazing to be alive, to be walking on the earth when Jesus was here. And it would be, right? There would be, that, would, that would, be, um, would be amazing to, to, to witness. I mean, and, and the, the things that the disciples have seen, and we, we've only covered, you know, a sampling just in, the, in, in John's gospel, right? What does John say? Man, if, we, if I would write down everything that would happen, right? The whole, the, the ocean couldn't hold it, right? I mean, so we've just, just the things we've covered in John. I mean, just to, to be there to witness these things would have been amazing. But here in this verse 7, our Lord is saying, to us today especially, that our situation now is better than that of the disciples when they were walking with Jesus. 
That's something to think about, isn't it? Dr. Sproul said, I think it was one of the most difficult statements of Christ to embrace. Because what, what do you say? He says, it's better that I go away. How can that be? May, no, Lord, we want you to stay. We, we, it, this is amazing. How, how can it be better that you leave? That's what Jesus said, right? He says, it's better that I go away. And that's why Dr. Spool said, I think it's one of the most difficult statements of Christ to embrace. Now, back to the disciples, right? They're, they're, they're filled with grief. They're thinking about their situation. They're going to, that, that Christ is leaving and they're sorrowful for themselves. But we do know, uh, praise the Lord, that at some point between when he announced that he was leaving, okay, which is right around this time, right? When, when he announced when he was leaving, between that time and the ascension, at some point, they understood the significance of the ascension. And why do we know that? Well, because of Luke 24, 15. We read over there in Luke 24, 15 that after Jesus had ascended, they did what? They went back to town rejoicing. So, they were, so at some point, they realized the significance of the ascension. And they weren't sorrowful. They went back to town rejoicing. They realized, what, what did they realize at this point? That Jesus is going back. He's returning with the ascension. He's returning to the right hand of the Father. His rightful place of glory. And Dr. Sproul kind of likened, he used an example, an illustration. He says, for a moment, he says, consider, uh, and we're about to enter into a presidential election, right? I guess it's next year. Is that right? Is that when our, everybody's running now. I guess it's all next year, right? The years run together for me, right? But um, So we're about to enter into a presidential election year, right? He says, so just imagine that you have a candidate and, and he's your guy. Okay, I'm not saying who it is. We're not getting politics. We're not talking about that today, right? Let's just say he's your guy. Or she. It could be she, right? Is there any? Yeah, there's some women running. Nikki Haley's running. He or she. They're your guy. They're your gal. Whoever it is. They're your person. Just imagine, though, so the candidate's doing really well, and it's election night, and they, uh, so I guess, you know, we're down here. It's about, we're about, where it's election day. It's November or whatever, that, that Tuesday of next year. And and you're and, and you've been watching the results all day long, right? And then the, the polls close at seven, and then they have a watch party, right? They're all gathered, all the, the supporters. They can't hear you got these two candidates, they're both running for president. It's a really big deal. And 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 so you have the candidates watching the returns come in, right? And you start seeing the reports, you know, and things are man, it's it's either neck and neck or it's lopsided or whatever it is, right? Sometimes we know election night, sometimes we know the next day, sometimes it takes weeks, right? We've seen that in the past too, right? <laughs> it's a mess. But, but at some point, right, a winner's declared. Right? At some point, a winner's declared, and when the other, and there's this important piece of this, um, of the other candidate too, conceding the race, right? That's, that's an important piece, right? Uh, so when, when one candidate's declared the winner, the other candidate concedes, congratulations on your victory, and then you have a big celebration, right? Big party, huge party, right? Everything, everybody's happy. Well, that, that side anyway, that candidate, right? Their people, they're all happy. Everybody's having a big party and it's a great time. Well, what if, so, and it's usually where, it's, it's usually sometimes like near where the, the candidate's from, right? Sometimes it's kind of where all this stuff is, right? Um, so let's just, let, let's imagine it's Nikki Haley next year, right? We won't talk about her, but she's from South Carolina. So maybe the party's here. Maybe it's happening here, right? And let's say she wins. And so he had this big party. 
Well, at the end of the night, it'd be like her saying, you know, I don't really want to go to Washington. Let's just stay right here. Can we just stay here? I, I don't really want to go. Let's just, this is so good, what we have right now, let's just stay here. Now, if you had been supporting this candidate the whole time, right? Raising money, doing all this kind of stuff, what would you say? Mm-mm. No, no. You can't stay here. Right? We did what? We did all this work to do what? To send you to Washington. That's why this happened. Right? You got to go take your place. We just got you elected to one of the, to the highest office in life. You got to go. You can't stay here. You got to go. You got to go to the White House where you belong. That's your rightful place. Right? How does this relate to what we're talking about? It, it would have been amazing, right, in the disciples' eyes if Jesus would have stayed right there. Right? It would have been great. But that's not why He came. Right? That's not all why He came. He, he did what He was sent to do. But now He's got to do what? He's got to go to the place that He has earned. Okay, it's like the candidate, right? They got the votes. They earned the election. They won the office. They got to go. They got to go serve. They can't just stay here. Well, he's accomplished everything that he's supposed to do at the ascension, and it's time he's got to go back to where he's supposed to be. And we know where that is. He, 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 he's going. And, and of course, the reality, and we all know this, right? I know in Americans we think we're just the greatest thing since sliced bread, but 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 Jesus was going to a, a much more important uh, important place than the Oval Office, right? A much more important place. He was going where to the right hand of the Father. That's right. He was going to the right hand of the Father. And it was far better for him to go there than to stay in Jerusalem. Far, far better. After, and after he returns to the Father, what does it say? One of his first acts. And he's telling this, right? He says, I can't, if I go away, I'm going to send a helper. I, I can't send the helper if I don't go away. So one of, one of his first acts is going to be is to do what? Send the Holy Spirit to minister to his disciples. Verse, verses 8 through 11, he says, And when he has come, that's the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, it's at this point, I think it's the first sentence in Dr. Sproul's commentary. He says, frankly, I'll be honest with you, he says, I'm not 100% certain what this passage means. And it frustrates me. That's his words. That's Dr. Sproul's words. I'm not 100% certain what this passage means, and that frustrates me. He pointed out that biblical scholars for, for years have struggled with this statement. What is Jesus saying here? Okay, about um, what the Holy Spirit's going to do, about this convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Well, there are two main views, okay, on this passage. I'll summarize uh, both of them. Uh, the first view is that Jesus was talking about certain events that would follow his resurrection. So when he, when he spoke of the conviction of sin, he was referring to a specific event or a series of events. And of righteousness, the same thing. He had a specific event in mind. And of judgment, the, other one, the third one, right, and of judgment. All these tied to specific events that would happen. 
That's, that's, that's one view in mind, okay? The second view, which Dr. Sproul favors, says that Jesus was referring to the work of the Holy Spirit in his ministry of applying the work of Christ to the people in the world who sin without any real contrition. Okay? That, let me read that again. Okay, this second view, which, which Dr. Sproul favors, is Jesus, was, when, he, when he said these things about convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, he's saying that he was referring to the work of the Holy Spirit in his ministry of applying the work of Christ to people in the world who sin without any real contrition. Okay, that's, that's his second view. And so he comments a little bit on that. And he says, what is the question of, 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 of behavior in the world? What, what drives the behavior of people in the world? What, you know, and I'm talking about just in general, not believers, but I'm talking about just people. Their right? nature. The what? Their nature. Their nature, okay. Um, in addition to the external, what's the external things that kind of drive? And, and he's looking for a specific uh, answer here. I mean, you're right. Obviously, their nature does drive it. Right? Well, what he was looking at is the behavior of the world is driven a lot by the morality of the world. Okay? The morality of the world. Um, people, and we know, again, we're talking mainly about the world here, the non-believers, right? And, and us too, we're guilty of this too. So don't say, hey, we're, we're immune to this. People are not usually concerned with doing what is objectively right, only what is right or acceptable within the culture at the time. Okay? And that's, that's true. We can, we, the last 10, I mean, just the last years in our own culture, right, we've seen a lot of change, right, in, in the culture and what the culture accepts as okay. Correct? We've seen a lot of this change, right? Whereas... 40 years ago, it would have not been seen as okay. But culture's morality, what it accepts, what it says is okay, has changed a lot, hasn't it? Has, has the law of God changed? Absolutely not. It's what the culture seems and what the culture says. Their idea of morality has changed. Even uh, in all of us, even the most dedicated Christians are influenced by the culture around us. And, you know, if you say it's not so, well... Look in the mirror again. You are, right? We all are. Uh, it starts in, in school uh, where we are, uh, um, where, when, we're, um, but when we learn what, how to be popular, right, among young people, how, what it means popular to be with it, that is to be in line with the morality of the people around us, the society, even if that includes some things that God doesn't approve, right? We, we find ourselves at a very young age we don't want to be alienated. We don't want to be different. We want to, be, we want to blend in a little bit, right? We, we want to fit in here. It's, um, it's, and of course, that is what our, as believers, that's what our internal struggle uh, with sin is all about, right? Every, every day we listen to the voices of the culture around us, and it's a struggle for us, right? For the believer who, who believes in an objective moral law, right? Who, this reality, uh, it's a struggle for us. For most of us, um, on a, a few minutes on Sunday morning, we hear the law of God. But every day we're in culture, we're in the world's, we're in the world, right? We're hearing what they are saying, and then, and then for a few minutes, 
if, if we're on, in church on Sunday morning, we hear the law of God. And we know that they don't match up. Right? We know that they don't match up. But unless the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, then we really don't pay attention to it. We're hearing something six days out of the week. We're seeing something. We're living somewhere. We hear something just for a brief moment. And what does he say? Unless the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, a lot of times we really don't even pay attention to it. Real conversion as we know it is an experience of repentance and forgiveness uh, before God. It's not simply praying a prayer. It's not simply um, receiving a sacrament. It's being brought to our knees by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, convicts us of what, or convinces us, excuse me, of what true righteousness is, right? And then shows us what? That we don't have it. Okay? That's the job of the Holy Spirit. That's what He does. And then we need a righteousness that is not of our own. And the Holy Spirit exposes us. He, he strips us of all the self-righteous that we have and He brings us into a state of judgment. Do you see the, where Dr. Sproul is going with this? Conviction of sin. Conviction of righteousness. Conviction of judgment. The Holy, Dr. Spoil said, the Spirit forces us to face what societal conventions would have us avoid. You see this, this ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the world and how He works and how the Holy Spirit works. In the end of this uh, lesson, he spends some time talking a little bit about the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. And of course we know it was an amazing uh, thing that happened. It was a recovery of the gospel, right? The light of the gospel. And we know Martin Luther, big name, right? In church history, he played a huge role in that. Well, at, his end, at the end of his life, Luther was very concerned that the gospel would be lost within at least one generation and replaced by superstition. That was what he was worried about. In, in February of 1546, just a few days before he died, he preached his very last sermon in his hometown. And in that sermon, this I'll read you a few, an excerpt just from his uh, sermon. He says, In times past we have run to the ends of the world. If we had known of a place where we could have heard God speak. But now, father and mother and children sing and speak of Him. The preacher speaks of Him in the parish church. You ought to lift up your hands and rejoice that we have been given the honor of hearing God speaking to us through His Word. Oh, people say, what is that? After all, there is preaching every day, often many times every day, so that we soon grow weary of it. What do we get out of all of it? All right, go ahead, dear brother. If you don't want God to speak to you every day at home in your house and your parish church, then be wise and look for something else. In Tyree, there's a, you can go find the Lord's coat. In Achan are Joseph's pants. And our blessed um, ladies, uh, this thing here, go, go there and squander your money. Buy indulgences and all the Pope's secondhand junk. What, I, know, I, I read that's an excerpt, right? What, what, what's, what's, what's Luther say? What's his point? He said, we have the wonderful benefit to hear the word preached. Sometimes, a couple times a day. Right? And what do we do? We'll squander it and we'll go look for relics. That's what the thing of his day, right? He was, he was, when he said, what was he, when he said the, our Lord's coat or Joseph's breeches, okay, what was he saying? He was referring to the practice that some had in his time, right, who would go on these amazing 
pilgrimages, right, to go see the so-called relics of the church. They wanted to go, oh, over here, this is Joseph's pants, right? And over here is a hair from John the Baptist's beard. I have to, I must go see that. Right? I need to go see that. They're, 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 they're walking away from the regular preaching of the word and they're chasing after junk is what he calls it, right? Why? They're looking for some power. They're looking for something else, right? They're looking for um, some, some, some spiritual power they could find in these relics. I think uh, Dr. Spruill's answer was just, why did they flock to these various places in search of all these objects? It's a simple answer. So the people were suffering from spiritual impotency and they believed they could find power in these relics. And then he asked the question, he says, hey, are we, uh, we're too sophisticated for that kind of stuff, right? We don't do that kind of stuff today. Wrong again, right? Not so sure. Not so sure. He says, turn on the television. Watch the televangelists slay people in the spirit. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen that happen? Slay people in the spirit. They want to knock people to the ground, right? With some power, right? What are they looking for? What are those people looking for? They're looking for the power of God. So they're seeking the power of God and these experiences. Now the true power, the power that will change your life, is the power of God, the Holy Spirit. The true power that will change your life is the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Why, what did Jesus say? Is it better that I leave? Because I'm going to send the Helper. He's going to do all these things. He's going to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He's going to reveal you all truth. He's going to tell you everything. It's, it's by the, the Holy Spirit's power, right, that the entire New Testament was written, right? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It gave him all truth. And guess what? This power of God the Holy Spirit that will change your life, guess what? God promises to accompany the preaching of His Word with that power. That's what God said He will do. It is not in chasing all these things. But you want to, what's He saying? If you, if you want to experience that power, sit under the preaching of the Word. God says He sends that with the true preaching of His Word. Do you expect that this morning when we leave here? We're about to leave. The bell's rung, right? Do you expect that when we go into worship service, is that something on your mind? We just, well, we know we've got a great pastor. We love him to death. He has good sermons. And you do, pastor. Thank you. But what, what did we just read? What is, what is God saying? Power? It's real. Available to God's believers by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what is it, how does it, what does it accomplish? The preaching of the Word. Man. When we go and He calls us to worship, we enter into a worship service. Pray that the Lord will use His Holy Spirit. Use the preaching of His Word. Father, use our pastor as your spokesman, as your mouthpiece to this church and to the world. And we pray that that power will be there and it will be present through the preaching of His Word. We ask that it will penetrate our hearts. Because that's where the power is. If indeed you believe in the Word of God. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our time this morning. Father, thank you for our lesson. Thank you for the work that's been done here. Father, if anything has been said here in error this morning, Father, we ask that you take it away and take it from our memory and we never see it again, Father. But, but where your truth has been uh, brought here today, Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit accompany that. Father, and apply it to our lives. And Father, as we leave here now, Father, fully uh, expecting to when we go into our worship service, Father, Father, we expect to hear from you. Father, we look forward to hearing from you. Father, we pray that power of the Holy Spirit be present. Father, we ask that you would use that power of the Holy Spirit to embolden your people for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.